Let's turn in the scriptures to Romans chapter 6. It's just wonderful to gather with you on this Resurrection Sunday morning. Worshiping the Lord with you all is joy itself. Just so thankful. I have loved singing with you and praying with you, reading scripture with you, just uh, greeting you in the hope of the resurrection. It's a day in which it's really mixed with a lot of sadness as well. Uh, I uh, can't help but drive around yesterday and today and just past five graveyards in which people who've passed, who've been part of this congregation, are laid to rest and awaiting the resurrection day. I can't wait for that day. We say Jesus is alive. We believe that after dying in a Roman execution 2,000 years ago, we believe that three days later, he walked out of the tomb. And we believe that 2,000 years later, he's still alive. He lives forevermore. Now, those sorts of convictions can appear to many to be very foolish and irrational. Many times Christians are accused of having blind faith, faith that makes no sense, and in fact, doesn't care if it makes sense. That might be true of some Christians, but thankfully it's not true of many, and I say that I'm, I'm praying that Tri-County is never marked by blind faith. We have a solid basis for believing that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. We have a solid basis for believing in the resurrection. The ultimate ground on which we stand, of course, is the Bible. We really need no other foundation for our faith. The Bible is God's word. The creator revealed himself in the scripture. And the God who is revealed there is trustworthy. So the Bible authors, being moved by God to write what they did, say that Jesus rose from the dead just as he was prophesied for many centuries. He would rise from the dead. That's enough. That's a foundation, a rational foundation to stand on. God said it, and we trust it. And we also believe that the Bible harmonizes with history and reason. For almost 15 years, Neil Shenvey and his wife have been active members in a large congregation near Durham, North Carolina. They moved to Durham from California, uh, Neil, to work as a research scientist at Duke. He had been converted about a decade earlier while he was studying chemistry in a PhD program at Berkeley. Neil often teaches his congregation there in Durham he often teaches on apologetics, giving a careful defense for what you believe. And he's recently published a book called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. 
You can explore more if you want at shenviapologetics.com. It's a helpful website on many, many subjects. In his book, he explains in one chapter that there are four issues that everyone who considers the resurrection, four issues that you must grapple with. First, he says, you have to evaluate the testimony that Jesus died in a Roman execution. That's testified not only in the New Testament documents, but it's also the testimony of many secular historians like Josephus and Tacitus and many others. Second, Shenvi says, you have to explain the empty tomb. You have to provide a reasonable answer to the question, so if Jesus didn't come back to life, if his body stayed dead, what happened to the corpse? Did the disciples take it? Is that a rational explanation? Did the authorities take it? Did robbers take it? You have to provide a reasonable explanation. Another thing that's really one of the hardest facts of the empty tomb to overcome with any rational explanation is, if the first people who testified of it were lying, why do you make up a story that women are the first witnesses when in their day, women wouldn't have been even trusted to give testimony in court. It was a very chauvinistic society. If you're making up a story that fits in that society, why do you make it up like that? Third, you have to consider the unflinching conviction of the apostles. Many people, not just one or two, many people claimed to have seen Jesus alive after he died. And it wasn't like a one-time thing. They claimed to have been repeated eyewitnesses. So there were many eyewitnesses who repeatedly saw Jesus alive over many weeks. How do you explain the conviction that they had repeatedly seen him alive? And how do you explain that many of them died for the sincerity of their conviction? They didn't die for something they hoped would happen in the future. They weren't telling people, we hope Jesus rises from the dead. They were convinced, they were certain something had happened. How do you explain the conviction, the unflinching conviction of the apostles? And fourth and finally, Shenvi says you have to account for the conversion of Paul. He says, how does someone who had no incentive to accept Christian testimony about the resurrection, change on a dime and believe it, and quickly reorient his entire life out of Pharisaic Judaism and orient his life around this crucified Messiah and then lose everything, including his life itself, and teaching it? I hope you see that faith accords with reason. There are reasonable foundations on which we base our faith. I share that whole introduction to say, Christians, we believe it. We believe it because God said it, period. 
It also accords with history and reason. We believe Jesus is alive. But from this point on, I want to say, the resurrection to us is more than historical fact. And it's more than future reality. It's not less than either of those. It is presently impacting our lives. And that's what I want to teach on this morning from Romans 6. About two months ago, I was prayerfully considering what to teach this weekend. And I just sensed the Lord strongly led me to this passage in Romans 6. I want to explain what it means to be united with Jesus' resurrection. So let's read Romans 6, 1 through 14. Paul says, What shall we say then? He's referring to we as Christians who are forgiven of sin. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So that God would just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and showing more and more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You might say, wait, wait, what do you mean we died to sin? I don't feel like I'm dead to sin. Paul explains, verse 3. Do you not know? What a question. Are you aware that all of us who've been immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? We, therefore, were buried with him by immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For since we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, that rebellious self that wouldn't submit to Jesus, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, he's saying, since we've been united with Jesus, we're not the people we used to be. The sin that once dominated our lives, our bodies, our activity, has lost its power to dominate us. We don't have to obey it anymore. He goes on to explain verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, since we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. It is no longer your master, since you're not under the law, but under the rule of God's grace. Hmm. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, we really have to start with understanding what he had been saying in the paragraphs that just precede it. The end of Romans 5, Paul basically taught that every person 
lives in one of two conditions. We might liken them to living in one of two countries. Okay? Either you're a citizen of the country called death, where Adam reigns as president. Adam was the first human. He's the president who declared war against the other country, against God's country. So everyone in his country is at war with God. That's everyone's natural condition. We come into the world like Adam. And the way of life for us naturally is, I don't let God tell me what to do. I'm my own authority. That describes the way of life for people who live in that country called death. Everyone in that country will face God's just judgment. That's one condition. The other is this. Some people who live in that country of death decide to go rogue and become traitors to their country. They hear that there's another country ruled by a different president named Jesus. His very name means God saves. They hear that that president died to bear God's judgment for all who would cross the border, risk it, cross the border into his territory. And everyone who submits to the authority of King Jesus gets graciously forgiven of all their rebellion. The name of that country is Grace. Let me say, if you have never turned from living as your own authority and you've never submitted your life to King Jesus, I urge you to do so now. You can be cleared in God's court of all of your law-breaking through what Jesus did for you. And you can be forgiven, cleansed of all of your sin, your record cleared I urge you to to run to Jesus now for forgiveness and cleansing. The country he presides over is the country of grace. And now we're ready to understand chapter 6. The question that begins chapter 6 is basically this. So if you now live in the country of grace where all of your rebellion is forgiven... Can't you just go on living however you want? Now, you might say, is that really a a relevant question? I'm not going to go too far down this this tangent, but let me just say that the the objection that Paul raises here in Romans 6.1 is a primary objection to the one true gospel by those who hate Christianity and by many who call themselves Christians. So, you might have heard this in the past, but popular actress Kiera Knightley one time joked, I'm desperate to be a Christian because if I could become a Christian, I could just ask for forgiveness and I would never have to live with any guilt. She said, It's absolutely extraordinary. If only I wasn't an atheist, I could get away with anything. Is that what following Jesus allows? You can get away scot-free with any behavior. That's Paul's question. 
Now, there are many who come from different angles, but are getting at the same issue. Many professing Christians, including Roman Catholic scholars and some Protestant scholars, insist that it is wrong to tell Christians that they are forever forgiven of their sin because it will encourage them to live immorally. For example, in their position papers, the Assembly of God denomination wrote a few years back, eternal security, telling people they are eternally secure in the country of grace, is a license for immorality under the banner of grace. In other words, if you tell people that they're forever secure under God's all-prevailing grace, you'll take away any incentive for obeying God. They'll just live however they want. I could go on and multiply examples from many different places, those who claim to be Christians and those who don't. But that's enough to show that Paul's question that begins Romans 6 is very relevant. If we're forever forgiven... Does that mean we can now live however we want? Paul's answer in Romans 6, 1 through 14 is this. God has united every Christian with Jesus' death and resurrection. Because we died with Jesus, we can't go on living like we used to. And because we've been raised with Jesus, we must live from now on a new kind of life, a life of service to him under his authority. The basic answer is this. God hasn't just given you a new president and a new passport. It's not like the change has been merely external so that you now have a new authority and you have a passport with a new logo on the cover. Paul's answer is Christian, do you understand God has changed you? He's changed you. The reason you can't keep living like you used to is because you're really not the person you used to be. What happened to change you? The big answer of Romans 6 is you've been united with Jesus. The main point again. God has united every Christian with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So because you died with Jesus, you're not the person you used to be. You can't keep living like you used to. And because you've been raised with Jesus, you must live a new kind of life. In the rest of the message, I just want to briefly explain the three levels of Paul's teaching, which are really applicational. Okay? The first is this. Christian... You are united with Jesus' death and resurrection. You need to know it. Verses 2, 3, and 4. It's where Paul asks, verse 2, Don't you know, Christian? Christian, do you know that God the Holy Spirit has personally united you with the death and resurrection of Jesus? It just raises the possibility... And I could be speaking to Christians here who need to acknowledge this might be something you don't know. You need to be educated. It's possible that you've committed your life to Jesus but never realized that you are personally and permanently united with Jesus. What does that mean? That you're personally united with Jesus? The issue of union with Christ 
literally fills books. And I'm going to summarize it in a minute. It's entirely inadequate, but I hope it's helpful. The truth that every Christian is united, vitally united with Jesus, is repeatedly illustrated throughout the Bible. Three of the most common, most helpful illustrations are these. It's like the union of a grapevine and its branches. Or it's like the union of a head and a body. Or it's like the union of a husband and his wife. This union is often called mystical, not because it's creepy, but because it defies comprehensive explanation. You might call it sublime. It, in some ways, is beyond description, like trying to describe the beauty of a sunset. Yet the only way anyone gets saved is through union with Jesus. If you personally don't get united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection... The blood of Jesus never gets personally applied to you. The power of his resurrection isn't working in you. And when he returns, you won't be raised personally if you personally have not been united with him. But Paul teaches here that every believer has been united with Jesus. And through this union... That God the Spirit works to immerse us, body and soul, in Jesus. Through this work that God the Spirit does, everything that Jesus did gets applied to us. It's just like the roots of a vine give life to every branch. You've got to be connected to the vine to get that life. It's just like the wealth of a husband becomes the wealth of his wife. It's just like my brain knows what my fingers feel. Personal union. Christian, if you're unaware of this truth, then inform your ignorance. Get educated. More than anything, read the Bible where you will encounter these illustrations. Read the New Testament and mark every time you see something like the little phrase, in Christ. See how many times it comes up. I guarantee you it's going to be hundreds. Get informed. Get educated. Because as G.I. Joe used to say, knowing is half the battle. Now let's talk about the battle. Know it. Believe it. Christian, you have to believe that you're united with Jesus. You can't simply know it. You have to believe it. That's where Paul goes in verses 5 through 11. He doesn't want you to simply know. He wants you to reckon that it factually, actually describes you. It's personally true for you. And to do this, Paul uses since then statements. Since you're united with Jesus' death, you're not the person you used to be. Since you're united with Jesus' resurrection, sin will not rule over your life. 
He says, you've got to reckon it to be true of you. Every one of us who claims to be Christ's, who's turned from being our own authority, who's begged him for forgiveness, every one of us still struggles. It's been mentioned a few times in the baptism, in the prayer. We're still warring, weary in the war. We struggle with discontentment, anger, worry, substance abuse, gluttony, immoral desire, bitterness, laziness. I'm naming just a few. These struggles can go on for years. So I speak to every one of us Christians who's struggling. It's every one of us. What do you believe about yourself? Do you often talk to yourself like this? I've lived with this sin so long. It's just who I am. I guess you just can't teach an old dog new tricks. I've tried to change, and I can't. The little booklet we're giving out at the back, Armin Tiffey's little booklet on the liberating power of the truth of Romans 6, he says, to talk like this to yourself is to allow sin to dominate your body. It's to admit defeat. It's to deny the truth of the scriptures. Do you believe, struggling Christian, that you're united with Jesus' death so that the sin that used to dominate your life does not have to anymore? What do you believe? In the core of your being, what do you believe? Do you believe that you've been united with Jesus so you're not the person you used to be? Either you're going to believe what God says, which is that you're united with the risen king. Or you're going to say, God, I read what your word says, but I believe what I feel. What are you going to believe? Third, finally, live out your union with Jesus. This is where Paul goes in verses 12, 13, and 14. You must actually live like you're free from sin, no longer obeying sin's demands. You see, in verse 13, Paul says, we must present ourselves to God and the languages and all of our members as instruments for God's use. Our members as instruments. Paul actually in that phrase is encouraging Christians to think of ourselves, even of our individual body parts, as tools or musical instruments. And the same tool can be used by a good craftsman or a bad craftsman. The same instrument can be played by a good musician or a bad musician. Paul is very practically telling us, Christians, now that you're alive to God, give every part of yourself to God to use. 
He might get specific and say things like this. You used to use your eyes covetously. You always looked at other people to try to fuel your own discontentment, to see what you didn't have that you needed for your happiness. That's the old you. Now, let God use the tools of your eyes rightly. Let God control your eyes so that you see other people and rejoice with their joys and say, how can I pray for them and bless them and serve them and love them? You used to use your mind to nurse grudges. Paul would, in effect, say, now give your mind to God and let him play on it the beautiful music of readiness to forgive. Don't nurse grudges. Say, I want that person to be forgiven just like God forgave me. Let God play the musical instrument of your mind, as it were. Or, you used to use your mouth as a tool to speak angry, slanderous, hurtful words. Now, let God use your mouth to speak kind, gracious words that encourage others and build them up rather than tear them down. Let God, the master craftsman, play the instrument of your life. It's the imagery. Paul teaches that union with Christ is a truth that every believer should know, should believe, and should live out. I end with a personal testimony that I hope encourages endurance. Learning to live out Romans 6 takes time. I'm not the only one who says this. Many, many, many Christians throughout history have, but I'm going to give you a personal testimony in conclusion. Even though I committed my life to Jesus in elementary school, throughout my teenage years, I became enslaved to immoral desire. Beginning around age 12, I got addicted to pornography. I was a Christian, but for more than five years, I lived under the reign of my sinful nature, giving in to cravings that Jesus died and rose again to save me from. For five years, I lived in chains. I would present the eyes, the brain, and the body that God had given me. I didn't give them to serve my new master, Jesus. I gave them to serve my old master, immoral desire that Jesus had rescued me from. And hundreds of times and thousands of times, I obeyed sin. And God used several things to bring me out of that bondage. Gathering with a gospel preaching church a few times a week was huge. I didn't like going to church all the time. Many, many times I just wanted to stay home and watch sports. I thank God today that my parents brought me with them to church and made me come. It was not an option. That was life transforming for me. Memorizing lots of scripture with my youth group was life transforming for me. I'll never forget in 10th and 11th grade being forced to memorize the entirety of Proverbs 5 
the entirety of Proverbs 7. It was life transforming for me to spend a lot of time with a few godly friends later in high school. When I was in the middle of ninth grade, my family moved. There are two friends who are still friends to this day, David and Ryan, who were the first friends with whom I experienced a positive peer pressure. It's invaluable. But nothing was more powerful than the truth of Romans 6. Between the time I was 17 years old and 20, I had a Bible, and Romans 6 is falling out of it. I must have read it and reread it and reread it a hundred times. And so many times I read Romans 6, I just pray, God, you tell me here that my sin won't have dominion over me, but it is. God, you've told me that I'm united with Jesus and I don't need to live any longer in bondage to sin, but I don't feel like I'm united to Jesus. And I feel like my sin controls me and it's going to keep on controlling me. And those were awful years. Awful years. And through those awful years, God taught me to treasure Romans 6. He taught me that it is true and that it can be powerful in my life. He taught me that Christian growth is often slow and it demands immersion in the truth of the Bible and and not only reading the Bible, but mixing what I read with faith, begging God to make his word true in my life. And I want you to know that the war is not over. I am not perfect, not even close. But I pray that what you see is sincere, that it's a sincere example. I hope you look at me and say, yeah, he's he's not the person he used to be, the person dominated by sin. I hope you see me and you say, yeah, I'm sure a lot of parts of him still love what God hates, and hate what God loves, but he's not living under the mastery of those things. And if you say, Joe, why aren't you living under the mastery of those things? I say this to the glory of God. It's because I'm united with Jesus' death and resurrection. See, I don't want to keep on living in that filth And under that shame. It's not like now that I live in the country of grace, I can do whatever I want. I'm just forgiven. My behavior doesn't matter. What a wonderful thing to live without a conscience. Not at all. Romans 5 says, We are forever secure in the country of God's grace under the good authority of King Jesus who died for us. And Romans 6 says, and everyone who lives in that country has been personally changed, united. Their whole being has been personally, actually, vitally, permanently united with Jesus, with his death and his resurrection. 
That's why we can't go on living like we used to. Christian, I pray that God helps every single one of us. Pray that God helps every single one of us to keep living out the truth of Romans 6. We're united with Jesus in his resurrection. Father, please help us to know it, believe it, use these truths to counter the lies that we're often telling ourselves, lies that are supercharged by our enemy who would love for us to believe that Romans 6 might be true of other Christians, but is not true of me. God, help us to fight lies with your word. I pray that you would help us to live this out and to keep warring the good war until we see Jesus, who was crucified and risen for us. Amen.